This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today we have Mr. John Danner on the uh, line with us. John, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Brett. Thanks. Good. Well, thanks for being here. I know uh, those listeners of the Circuit of Success, we had his co-author, Chris Keeney, on the uh, podcast uh, maybe about a month ago. But to uh, give a little lay of the land who John is, he is a, uh, he's a senior fellow at the University of California, Berkeley's Institute for Business Innovation. So I'm sure we got a lot to talk about there. Um, you travel the world and speaking and doing keynotes for corporations and international conferences. Uh, you also are an author, which we'll talk about Built for Growth, which is a phenomenal book. And I'm sure some of your other book stuff will come up. But, uh, but ladies and gentlemen, this is John Danner. So, John, could you just give us a little lay of the land on those listeners that don't know who you are? Uh, what's made you the man you are today? Well, I'd have to say if I were, if I were going to describe myself currently, I would be a professional juggler in that uh, mm-hmm. I handle about four or five different things right now. I, I teach. I have the good fortune and honor of teaching at one of the best public universities uh, at the business school at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and also at one of the great private universities of the, of the country at Princeton every year. So I teach. Uh, I anchor a lot of executive education programs around the world. I do a fair number of uh, keynote speaking, as you mentioned. I do a, now an increasing amount of advising and consulting for companies of various sizes all over the world and multiple industries as well. Um, and I get a chance to uh, periodically try to do some good along the way. So I, I do a lot of pro bono work <laughs> for various kinds of ventures, uh, active in trying to make the world a better place while at the same time creating sustainable ventures. Well, you come on bum like mine, uh, you know, my podcast, you're, you're, you're a kind gentleman with your time. So we appreciate that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm happy, happy to do it. I'm, I'm delighted. I'm honored to, honored to have a chance to spend some time with you. Well, let's, let's dive right in. I mean, your book, uh, built for growth. I'm, I'm sitting here holding it right now. It's, it's one of those books. Our entire executive leadership team, um, read it. Uh, I want to talk about builtforgrowth.com. That's the website. Everybody should go to that. It takes about, what would you say? Less than what? Oh. Two minutes? Less than, less, less than five minutes for sure. Uh, but, less you know, than five minutes. As little as two, less than five. There you go. And so that, you're going to get a great example of, uh, you know, just what your personality traits are in to run a business. But why don't you just give us kind of a lay of the land, built for growth. You and Chris, great book. Uh, why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Well, I've been interested, as has my co-author Chris Keeney, uh, in this whole phenomenon of growth, as, as you know, and I'm sure most of your listeners recognize Growth is really the, the fundamental job and imperative of every organization, nonprofit, for-profit, uh, even government organizations, I think, aspire to grow. Um, but the question is, how is that done? How is it best done? How do you sustain it? Part of that is linking growth to innovation. Uh, part of that is linking growth to a culture of employee engagement. But in our judgment, the central mystery of growth is how do you find and, and encourage and surround and support the entrepreneurial talent that is usually at the center of most 
growth that happens in business environments. So Chris and I decided to turn our attention to that mystery of who. It's not so much the what and how of entrepreneurship and business growth. There are lots of books and resources available, uh, really wonderful ones, whether you're starting something from scratch or you're trying to re-energize an established organization and regain some of its earlier entrepreneurial DNA. Uh, but our focus was not on the what and the how. It was really on the who. How do we understand the personality characteristics of the women and men that drive and create the kind of growth that every organization is aspiring to? So we spent some time applying a patented technology that Chris had developed in his former company, uh, Rosetta, which was quite successful in decoding the behavior in very practical ways of consumers in hundreds of markets around the world. We got curious about applying and adapting that proven methodology upstream to trying to decode the personality characteristics of the people who create those businesses and products and solutions in the first place. So we embarked on a two-year-plus research effort, uh, not just uh, sending questionnaires out to hundreds and hundreds of successful entrepreneurs, but equally importantly and, and wonderfully uh, rewarding were a number of individual interviews that we had with with people across the entrepreneurial landscape. And at the end of that research, uh, the algorithms that, that were driving our methodology enabled us to identify four very distinct patterns of personalities, what we call builder personalities, uh, the driver, the explorer, the crusader, and the captain. And there were a couple of just wonderful moments when Chris and I looked back and we said, this is really opening not just the one door that I think a lot of people have in their minds that I have to be like so-and-so in order to be a successful entrepreneur. In fact, we found there are four doors uh, to entrepreneurial success. And you, can, you don't need to be like any one type. You can be another of the, these four paradigms of builder personalities, each one of whom has been extraordinarily successful in building companies from scratch that have attained both scale and have survived uh, and, in effect, defied the odds. Each of those types has its own, as Chris and I talk about in the book, gifts or strengths on the one hand and gaps or weaknesses on the other because nobody's perfect in this world. Um, and we've, we've been fascinated by seeing how those personality patterns play out in shaping the growth trajectory of a variety of different businesses. Got it. And so when you think about that, so I'm going to, I'll pick on myself here for a little bit. Well, let's talk about my strengths and let's talk about my weaknesses. As you know, I'm from all the algorithms, but so I'm a driver. And the way you guys explain the driver in the book is relentless, commercially focused, and highly confident. So I joke, there's always a fine line between confidence and arrogance, and, and I hope you know that we we walk that line on the confidence side. And uh, but that's very important, right? Because yeah, you do you want to have confidence, but you don't want to be arrogant. So let's walk through no, that. That's what's right. The strength. What's the weakness of the driver? Well, you ticked off three of the key strengths. Um, one of the one of the things that I think differentiates drivers from the other three is this intense personal identification that most driver entrepreneurs have with the product or solution that they're bringing to the market. In other words, it's almost an extension of themselves. They identify with it so strongly uh, that it's hard to sometimes to separate the product or the business on the one hand from the individual who's driving the business on the other. 
And that can be a tremendous strength. It, it, it has a tenacity and a, and a sense of just sheer uh, defiance, if you will, uh, that a lot of drivers carry into the marketplace. And through force of simply believing in what they're doing, what they're bringing into the market, uh, they're able to convince a lot of people to join them. They're able to convince a lot of customers to buy from them. Uh, and they're able to withstand a lot of the, the unexpected ups and downs that happen with building any businesses. But with that tenacity and that, um, as Chris and I kind of nicknamed it, product narcissism, uh, with that product narcissism can come some problems. Um, drivers are not the easiest people to work with or to work for in many circumstances. Um, they are so sure of their own attitudes and their own ideas that sometimes it can be difficult to really truly listen to good ideas from another perspective within one's team. And that can be fine in the early going, but as a company tries to scale and you need to be able to surround yourself with more and more different kinds of people and different kinds of skills, sometimes that tenacity and self-confidence can, can come at the expense of creating a culture that rewards the kind of diversity and diversity of skills that are necessary oftentimes to create a truly scalable uh, enterprise. So the goods and the bads. Um, and I can, say that with, I can say that with my own fingerprints on that one because that's who I am as well. <laughs> You're a driver? Um, I am, yeah. Yeah, and, and so what, what's things, nice though is that, so I agree with what you said, but I, I think uh, hopefully I've learned. I, I do a lot of you know, self-learning and studying and reading, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I try to get better at that stuff. And I think that's helped over time because when I look at our executive team, like our COO, Kate Solberger, she's the explorer. We have three people on our executive team, Jana Gregoric, Mark Schlafly, and Tim Hammett. Tim Hammett's our, my co-founder with me and president of our firm. He's the crusader, and our chief investment wow. officer is the captain. So wow. yeah, we've got a really good balance of our, of our team. And so, um, you know, I think that's important. But w- what do you find when you look at whether it's the driver or the crusader like Tim is? I mean, what are those um, roller coaster moments? How do they deal with those? Uh, in moments when, you know, in the morning it could be you're on a high and in the afternoon sure. you're on a low. How do you get through sure. that stuff? Well, let me, let, me, let me peel off the other three because each of them face those ups and downs, I think, very, very differently. And the nature of what, what they struggle with oftentimes uh, is, is quite different. Uh, you mentioned one of your folks is an explorer. Um, explorers are terrific at systems thinking. Um, whereas the driver tends to get fascinated, almost fixated by product, the explorer is somebody who gets really intrigued by puzzles and problem solving. Um, they, they don't necessarily fall in love with their product or the, or the solution of the moment. What they're really trying to do is to figure out the next elegant solution of something complicated that is, that is kind of confused uh, other people. They get pulled in by their curiosity. And that can be a wonderful characteristic because, uh, and we give a number of examples, some famous and some less famous in the book, um, but that can be a terrific insight that opens up a market, opens up an, an, a solution for a market that nobody's been able to figure out. The difficulty for, that many explorers face is that they can tend to look at the people around them almost as if they're factors in an equation or pieces in a puzzle that need to be rearranged. And... Oftentimes, explorers struggle with the more human dimension uh, of management and leadership. They 
They want people around them who are every bit as smart and analytical as they are, but they sometimes have difficulty accommodating to the foibles and the, and the different styles uh, emotionally as much as anything of the people that oftentimes they need to work with or depend upon to get the kind of results that they're looking for. Now, crusaders are different altogether. Um, crusaders, if, if the other two are product and problem interested and, and focused, uh, crusaders tend to be more mission and vision driven. They really think about the long-range trajectory of the organizations that they're responsible for. And usually it's connected to some, some desire to either make the world a better place or to reshape the landscape in some fundamental way. They're looking for an organization that can create meaning. They're looking for a venture that can actually make a difference, not just commercially, uh, but potentially socially as well. And with that commitment to vision, um, it, it gives them an ability to attract like-minded followers to that particular crusade. The problem comes when, and and many of the many crusaders that we talk to acknowledge this in their own in their own careers. They sometimes can confuse vision with the need for supervision. Uh, in other words, they'll they'll be willing to give the benefit of the doubt to somebody who may be underperforming simply because that person is committed to the long-range vision of the organization. And you can only do that so often. Uh, at some point, actual mastery, actual competence can sometimes matter every bit as much as, as a single-minded commitment to the vision or mission of the, of the firm. And then the last, the last type, the last builder personality is the captain. And what differentiates the captain is that, to some extent, these are not managing around the me as much as they are managing and leading around the we. These are folks that get intrigued about the potential of the teams that they surround themselves with uh, to do something that the group has its fingerprints on rather than a kind of, hey, I've got the right idea, follow me into the breach, which can tend to be the, the rallying cry of a driver because of the product focus and explorer because of the wizardry of the problem that they've just solved. Or the, or the passion and vision that, that a crusader can get motivated by. Captains are willing to basically sit back, listen, and empower. So what's the problem that a captain tends to find? Well, because sometimes because they tend to focus behind the scenes a little bit more, and they're willing to let people handle things out in front, they can lose the sensitivity to, met, to significant changes in their markets and in their technologies and product positioning and can be late to the game in recognizing those kinds of tectonic shifts that can sometimes happen out on the front lines of a business. And oftentimes a captain is back either at headquarters or back in meetings and conferences uh, and is just two or three steps removed from where the real action and changes are, whether those are opportunities or challenges. Got it. Well, that's a lot there. And I think, again, for those people listening to this, I, I encourage you to go to Built for Growth dot com take the test uh worst case scenario take the test and then you can get everything he just said and, and apply it to your own test so that, that'd be good so uh let's let's flip the uh let's flip the page a little bit no pun intended with your book sure. here but um let's talk about you know there's no magic answer to this and i know that but i'm going to ask it anyway so you're traveling the world you're seeing some of the greatest leaders some of the smartest people in the world what are you finding are the habits and rituals 
that that make greatness happen in our companies, in our lives, our personal lives, etc. You know, a tough question. Um, let me let me try to answer as best I can. Um, I think a lot of it starts with integrity, and I don't mean integrity solely in the sense of honesty. Uh, I mean it more in the sense of authenticity. In other words, a leader who understands herself or himself can lead and manage in a way that reflects that honest assessment of who they are can be a tremendous multiplier effect in an organization. And to the extent that a person is operating against their self, against their fundamental nature, ignorant of the ups and downs and weeks and pluses and minuses of their own personality, that can begin to reverberate in an organization. I mentioned earlier on that I was been fascinated for a long time about growth and innovation and engaged employees. Um, in a, another book that I wrote called The Other F Word on how smart entrepreneurs, leaders, yeah. and teams put failure to work, we had a chance to work with um, the organization that does those 50 great places to work in the world. It's called the Great Place to Work Institute. And they were very generous in sharing some of their research with us in the writing of that book. One of the most important insights that they've picked up in all of the work that they've done globally, all kinds of organizations, big, medium, and small, is that if you want to create a great place to work, you have to have trust in the organization. Trust vertically between the top management and the, and the people working in that organization so that they get the sense that they can fundamentally count on the truthfulness of what they're being told by their leaders, but equally importantly, horizontal trust, that kind of peer-to-peer trust that you know whether somebody's got your back when things start to head south or not. And that element of trust goes to this question that I was suggesting earlier about integrity because people get it. People get whether or not you're real. They get whether or not they can count on what you're saying. They get whether or not you're going to be with them when things aren't going so well. And no amount of rhetoric can cover up for a get, that kind of integrity gap. So that's certainly one. And then the second one, I think, if, if I can have the luxury of two rather than one. Um, Absolutely. The second, the, the, the second is resiliency. And I use resiliency huh. more than tenacity because sometimes tenacity simply means you're hitting your head against the wall over and over and over again and you're kind of angry at the world for not recognizing you know the brilliance of your strategy or the wonders of your product or services resiliency implies a certain degree of humility that goes along with the confidence that that says that you can listen to the world you can respond to what the world's telling you it uh, doesn't mean that you abandon your, your certainly doesn't mean that you abandon your values, but you don't necessarily abandon your objectives or your vision, but you are able to acknowledge that maybe the way you've been going at it isn't as effective as it could be. And you're able to retool, refashion, and, and, and get back in the game with a different strategy going forward. That's resiliency. And I think the combination of those two things uh, explains a lot of what you see in highly successful businesses. And I think that at the absence of either one of those 
can can give you, a, unfortunately, all too frequent examples of organizations that are not living up to their potential and on their way on their way down rather than on their way up. Yeah, and, and let's so let's keep talking about that and dive a little deeper. So on those same habits and and, and uh, rituals, I, I agree 100 percent with what you said. But where does think time and, and slowing down? I made a post on social media today, and I talked about working on your life, not just in your life, right? And so many times I think as leaders, as parents, as whatever we're doing in our everyday lives, we just get so busy, right, and caught up in the day-to-day and emails and kids' practices, whatever it may be, that we don't slow down. So how important is that? How important is that habit ritual in being successful? Incredibly important um, because it, it, it gives you not just insight into yourself, but it gives you reflective time to understand the ideas that you have and to be able to put them in some kind of context so that you can take action on them. Um, I'm a big believer and because it's been one of the most powerful motivators for me in my life of, of just giving time to allow your curiosity and creativity to roam, to have unplanned, unstructured time. It's why I like travel so much because there's, there's, a, there's an, always a degree of unexpectedness in, in the best travel experiences. Uh, that, that I've had. Um, but I think it's also true professionally and intellectually that giving yourself some, some bandwidth, some time to let your curiosity roam, to try to, to let your creativity uh, go free a little bit. I'm a big fan of sketching. Uh, and I, I keep notebooks and, and uh, in all kinds of different forms, but, but usually I keep a pen and, and a notebook with me everywhere I go. And I like the idea of keeping able to being able to jot things down, to sketch ideas out, uh, and let them just sort of percolate for a while. Because I'm a big believer that, that at the end of the day, serendipity trumps strategy far more often than we would like to admit. Hmm. It's, that, yep. it's that creative collision that happens between an idea or between two people or between a book that you read or a web or a web webcast that you saw or heard and something that you'd been thinking about but were missing some ingredient you wouldn't have planned on it but if you're not listening and not giving yourself some time those kinds of creative collisions uh can't happen and they've been I think um, very helpful in my life and my career and I have a lot of respect for <laughs> for for chance as well as as, as well as conscious choices yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, so many people on here, we've talked about that that quiet time, that just you're yourself in a journal. I mean, I can tell you some of my best ideas in my business career, my life, you know, just personally things my wife and I want to go do. Uh, I mean, those things come from that quiet time of me in a journal, right? And it, I think it's got to become a habit because I think so many people, again, we're, we're in this busy, crazy world that we're in, right? A, a constant notifications and information is we, if we do slow down, and just turn everything off and yourself in a notebook, you can somewhat feel like a failure, right? Because you're not, quote unquote, getting something done. Right? Would you agree with that? And then how do you overcome Absolutely. that? Absolutely. One of, one of the things I stumbled onto when I first started teaching at the business school, and I've done it in virtually every class I've done since, is I, I have an assignment for my students to actually keep a handwritten journal. Now, you know, if, if you deal with millennials at all, uh, the idea of a handwritten anything is <laughs> right. uh, is a novel is a novelty. Um, these folks are you know they're used to carrying their cell phones and their iPads and, and their laptops, but actually working with the old technology of a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, 
And what I find over the course of the semesters as they get used to that, that, that new kind of discipline is, first of all, sketching. It's hard to sketch when you're on, a, on, a, on an iPhone or, or you're trying to work on your laptop. You have to, you have to deal with a keyboard as an input. Uh, that's not how the human brain is designed to work. It can, it can be helpful with a keyboard, but it's awfully ter- it's terrifically rewarding to have an open piece of paper or a lined piece of paper in a journal or an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper in front of you. And you can let your words and let your ideas and your visions really take life. Um, and that takes a little bit of time, but it also takes a little bit of permission as well. Well, I think it also helps the memory, right? I mean, like you said, our, we don't remember the <laughs> Absolutely. No, we write Absolutely. it down and remember it. And I got my, my belief is, so I take always my iPad with the Apple Pencil, and then I take my yep. – I have a black journal with me everywhere I go. And so yep. if it's about my life, it's about goals, it's about dreams, um, that stuff goes in my journal. Because I want to be able to hand that down to my kids one day, right? Yep. I want to be able to give I'm, them, and I'm my grandkids you. are reading that stuff. And then if it's just normal meeting type stuff, it goes in the iPad, and, and there it is. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer, and you can probably hear the passion in that. And I just hope people do slow down enough, and they hear me say it enough, just slow down and trust me that – doing that stuff. And then here you're hearing a guy that literally teaches at the two, two of the best universities in the country uh, agreeing with that. So um, now let's talk about uh, the power of no, right? I think as a leader, sure. as a, as, again, in this world, we get a lot of things thrown at us and we want to be nice, right? We want to say, yes, I'll do this or yes, I'll do that. But how powerful is the word no when you're trying to build something uh, great? Well, I'll give you uh, an example uh, from uh, somebody that uh, is a fellow, was a fellow driver, probably the icon that most people around the world associate with that particular Mr. builder. Mr. Steve person. Jobs. That's, yeah, Steve Jobs. Um, the, the, the vignette is that when, when Jobs was building Apple uh, in, his second, in his second incarnation, um, he would have uh, you know, massive strategic planning meetings with all of his senior executives, and they would do the usual things, right? They'd come up with many, many, many ideas, and they'd fill a lot of posters, et cetera, et cetera. And they'd eventually come down to, say, 10 possible ideas that, are, that might be worth pursuing as the next round of initiatives for Apple. Jobs, personally, would go up to that list of 10 and knock off seven, not because they weren't great ideas, but he said because the reason we're great is we focus on the three that matter. There are seven other things there that, you know, probably would be the fruit of many other successful companies, but that's the, that's the focus and the discipline of being willing to say no, because at some point it just is so confusing for people to try to juggle multiple priorities because inevitably there's a competition for resources, there's a competition for time, energy, creativity, management attention, uh, and the like. And to, to go back and ask yourself, if I could only do one or two things that would make this company significantly better, would give me a sense of greater satisfaction, what are those one or two things? And make sure that you've allocated enough time and resources to make sure you're giving your best to those two. And if it turns out you end up with some bonus time, some bonus resources, fine, go further down your list. But the idea of of the shotgun approach uh, tends not to work all that well over time. The other thing that I think is is important because it ties both of these last two ideas uh, together is, in many ways, I think the job of an effective leader is translation. 
is how do you translate complexity into simplicity? How do you translate strategy into execution? And that means you've got to think beyond yourself. You have to be willing to try to understand the language of the people you're trying to motivate and lead or customers you're trying to sell to. You have to understand their language, their perspective uh, on what it is you're trying to get done. And then you can figure out how to translate what you want to get done, not in your own terms, but in their terms. And that's a tough process. It's also a tough process that takes a lot of work and, and, and rehearsal and, and iteration. You can't do that with very many initiatives. That's another reason right. why, the empower, to use your phrase, the power of no is so essential to effective leadership. Yeah, I think, too, is, is asking great questions, right? I, I would assume Steve Jobs, it would have been awesome to be in the room with him doing that, but he probably didn't literally just walk up and, and maybe did, but scratch him off, but my guess is he had some really, really good questions behind it that would almost Absolutely. cross them off on their own, right? And then because yeah. I think it's true, right? So if I, if I said, hey, John Daner, you go do this, whatever this is, versus if I ask you the right questions, and you said the exact same thing, but if you say it versus me saying it, it's the gospel. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. So, it's, it's the question of having fingerprints on the strategy and agendas that you want your organization to have. They've got to have more fingerprints than just yours. That's right. And so let's talk about blinders now. I mean, I think we can all put on blinders on our lives, right? Of, no, that, that bad thing's not happening, right? And, but, yep. I mean, how do we take those blinders off, again, as, as parents, as husbands and wives and leaders, how do we take the blinders off? Well, I think there are a couple of, uh, couple of possible suggestions there. Um, the first is that most blinders are there because of assumptions that, that we make implicitly but have not examined and have not looked at as objectively as we might. Um, and I'll, a, a very simple exercise that, that I do with clients I work with and suggest to the students that I teach is to, when they're working on developing a particular plan of action or strategy, uh, literally try to draw this out. Uh, I do it in a particular target format. Um, which is what has to be true for this strategy to work? What has to be true about customers? What has to be true about our team? What has to be true about our product? What has to be true about our financing? What has to be true about regulation? In other words, to, to create an environment where you, you are invited and almost forced to specify the exact assumptions that are behind your strategy or your idea that you're so enthusiastic and confident about. That's the beginning because it can give you the advanced pre-early warning system uh, of what you might need to be looking for that could test the early signs of, of struggle or difficulty with executing that strategy. So that's one thing. The second is just the power of diversity around the table, um, the creation of a culture that rewards open, challenging conversations in the search of the better of better decisions uh, that that reward people for expressing their mind tolerates diversity respects their fundamental humanity and does it in a way that that I've sort of paraphrased as as offering growth for both by that I mean you want a team environment in an organization that yes it's focused on the growth for the company but if it doesn't provide opportunities for the individuals to grow themselves personally and professionally in ways that are important to the individual, 
I think you're un, you're unlikely to tap into the inherent creativity and enthusiasm and capability of the people that that are working with you and for you. So it's 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 a combination of things, but I think this issue of translation um, becomes a very important thing to focus on if you're if you're trying to be a, a more effective leader. Um, and so I think, again, turning the page here, but vulnerability, transparency. I mean, I had, I had lunch with a good buddy of mine. He's in the same business, but Chris Howard. And we right. talked about today. He said, yeah, Brett, I wish you shared more on your podcast about your stuff, right? So, And I'm going to tie this back into a, a question that is about belief and belief in yourself and, and having people kind of cut that cord, right, that's holding us back sometimes. It's, you know, right. I, I picture the the – the parachute behind us and we're trying to run and we can't go anywhere. We got to cut that cord. And so, you know, I look at it from here. I'm a guy from Mattoon, Illinois, right? Small town in Illinois, went to Eastern Illinois university. I've, I've worked hard my whole life to, to be successful and have a great family. And, but it, it's that humbling moment of like, here I am. And I had chills earlier. You were talking, I'm like, my gosh, I'm this kid from Mattoon that's talking to a guy from Princeton and Cal Berkeley. Right. And so, but part of that is, though, just reaching out to people and making things happen on your own, right? Because you're, you put your pants on the same way I do, right? I always jokingly say two legs at a time. And, uh, but, but, you know, I think that there's something in that, that it's we all have to have the confidence to reach out and, and make our own luck, right? Because John Danner at this, on surface, is this guy with a great book and at these universities, why would he talk to Brett Gillen? But we have to have that hey, confidence listen, in ourselves hey, to make it. Yeah, hey, listen, I grew up in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, hey, I, there I, you I go. Know where you, I, kn- I know where you grew up. I, kn- I, I, I went to St. Louis with my Little League team. It was still a great memory of my life. <laughs> yeah. So but You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, so here you are, that guy yeah. from Evansville, Indiana, and you're like, how the heck am I teaching at Princeton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's the same thing. But I'll tell you, you know, here, here's another way to, to come back on that last thing we were talking about. You know, I think courage comes in small doses. Um, and I think one of the things that, that differentiates leaders and, and in this context, entrepreneurs in a business environment is the willingness to do nothing more complicated than taking the next step with their particular idea or their particular yep. agenda. Sometimes we, we make far too much of all of the risks that we think are out there all the reasons not to try something. But the idea of simply backing up and saying, what would be the next thing I could do that would potentially test an idea or refine an idea? And maybe it's as simple as talking to somebody or reading something or getting on a Google search and finding out something more about it or visiting somebody. It doesn't take much to move an idea out of your head and get beyond that zone of fear that we all put on ourselves. It's one of the reasons I got so fascinated by the concept of failure in that, in the, that earlier book I mentioned. And for most organizations and most leaders, you want growth, you want innovation, and you want a culture of engagement. Those are three things that you absolutely want in a business. The one thing you don't want is failure. But ironically, the three things you do want depend very critically on your comfort level with failure because you're not going to get growth without it. You're certainly not going to get innovation without it. And you're not going to get trust to create employee engagement without proving that you're capable of giving trust when failure is present. I could not agree more. I mean, I'm writing a note here, but 
one of the acts or one of the circuits of the circuit of success is action, right? And that's what you're talking yep. about. I, I say take Absolutely. action every single day, right? You get Absolutely. the idea, just move the needle one inch. That's right. right? That's and right. The next thing you know, you, you know, the old, what's the, how you run a marathon one step at a time, right? That action demonstrates commitment and the commitment breeds credibility, not just, a, not just in when people see it from you, but it builds credibility for yourself in yourself. Well, yeah, that, that, this whole podcast turned out to, it was a, an idea. I was sitting on my couch in my family room and I took the action. I text messaged nine people that I thought would, that people would want to hear from. And they all came back and said, yes. And I'm like, oh man, now I got to do a podcast. Right? <laughs> they, all, they all committed to it. And now here we are, you know, 75, 76 guests later. And it's been, I'm just having the time of my life doing it. And it's, uh, but it took action, right? And so I want to talk about that failure. I, the question I always ask is, I say fear, but fear, I think, is fear of failure. Um, and so when, when you think about fear, we all, all people, put fear in our mind, right? And so yep. how many of the fears that, that you find, other leaders and then even yourself personally, how many of the fears you put in your mind actually grew to the magnitude you thought they would be? Very few. Very few. Um, and, yep. and the discoveries I think you make and often make in life is that the things that, that may might have happened, you could not have anticipated. <laughs> and they came from no. areas that, that you didn't part enough to, to be afraid of in the first place. Um, right. So that's one of the reasons I said earlier that I think both serendipity and there ought to be a phrase in the English language called malendipity, you know, bad things. <laughs> because both right. things, both things demonstrate we're not in control of our own future. What we can do is make decisions about what we're going to do today and tomorrow, and and we hope for the best, prepare for the prepare for the best, but recognize that sometimes that's not going to happen, and you've got to be able to be resilient in the face of of failure, whether it's large or small, because um, failures, you know, failure is basically reality way of telling you you don't know what you thought you knew. If you're can just be wise enough to use it and put it back in play, you're going to make a better decision the next time around. Yeah. So uh, last couple sentences, or sentences, last couple questions here. Uh, when you hear the word attitude, what comes to mind? Awareness. Um, self-awareness, first and foremost, because attitude with a capital A can come across negatively. One of the values that we have at the Business School of Berkeley is uh, leadership without attitude. That's the kind of attitude I'm talking about there. In other words, yeah, where it good. comes across as arrogance, where it comes across as not being willing to listen to other people. Um, but, but real attitude is, I think, about self-awareness. It's about having the confidence and consciousness uh, of what you care about, what you stand for, what you're interested in doing. And that goes all the way back to the first thing I was suggesting about the importance yeah. of integrity. And this wasn't one of my uh, one of my notes here that I was going to ask you, but I mean, we have a lot of leaders, right, that are now these millennials are getting into the job force, right? And so we're having to interview them or we're doing things like that. Mm -hmm. Any advice for the leaders out there that we're dealing with a different generation and, and you're with them every single day? So, I mean, what what are you learning? What what should we be learning and thinking about for those those folks? Well, I'd, I'd suggest two things at least. One is listen. Because the, the, the amount of talent and the amount of curiosity and, and ambition is phenomenal. It really is. Um, but with that comes a degree of impatience that is actually, I think, pretty exciting uh, among, among millennials. 
millennials are not going to be interested in putting time in, in grade and waiting for two years, three years, five years, ten years to have the next big opportunity open up for them. That, in turn, is going to put uh, cultures under a lot of stress because cultures are going to have to be more, more vibrant. They're going to have to improve the velocity with which they open up opportunity to people coming into the organization. And they need to understand that the relationship that they're, they're likely to establish with a millennial employee might be transitory. It might not be a career-long. It probably isn't going to be a career-long engagement. It's going to be kind of uh, in and out and hopefully back and forth because these folks are interested in, in staying vibrant. They're interested in work that matters to the world and has meaning to them personally. Uh, and they expect cultures that are more flexible than many of the organizations that, uh, that they see around them. And what that means for people running those organizations is you've got to be willing to basically challenge some of your own assumptions about what it takes to motivate people with talent and creativity so that they stay engaged and involved and committed to the work of your organization. So I'm, in, I'm enthusiastic about them. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it, too, right, is, is to look at the positive side of that is because they are trying to move the needle. And these younger folks that are building things that 30, 40, 50 years ago we weren't thinking about. Big deal. Absolutely. Uh, well, Mr. John Danner, it's been an absolute blast. Where can we, where can uh, our listeners find more of John Danner? Well, you can go to my website, uh, johndanner.com. That that tries to I try to keep that reasonably up to date in terms of the various things that I do. But sure. uh, the book the the book that we've been spending most of our time talking about the website is www.builtforgrowth.com. I obviously encourage your readers to take a look at it. Take the take the personality test. Uh, and let us know what you find out and what you think of the book. Uh, the other, the other uh, website for the failure book is theotherfwordbook.com. Very important that you put the word book in that, in that <laughs> URL uh, for, for understandable reasons. Uh, but any of those three sites um, will, will get you to various things that I've been thinking about and working on. Awesome. Well, we love that, and we will definitely send people that way. And my last question for you, I give you $10 million. You can't pay off debts if there are any. You can't go out and, you know, invest it in stocks and mutual funds and put it in the bank. And you can't give it to charity because I know you'd probably give it to charity. But what, what are you doing with $10 million today on that check I'm giving you? I would plan to create something that would be the equivalent of the Nobel Prize. But I would <laughs> focus it on endeavors in which women uh, have been likely to be significantly successful because I think the future of the world depends uh, every bit as much on the sparking the imagination of young girls around the world. And I think a powerful way to do that, not unlike what the Nobel prize has done over its hundred plus years um, is to basically give women of substantial accomplishment, the kind of respect and recognition that a, a significant prize of the sort of the, the Nobel Prize could do. That's what I'd start with with $10 million. I love it. A lot more than $10 million, but that's the, that's the <laughs> it's idea. It's a good down payment, right? Good yeah, down exactly. exactly. Well, uh, that's a great answer, and I appreciate that. John, it's been absolutely a pleasure to have you on the Circuit Success Podcast, so thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. 
Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.